Let's pray. Lord, as we get ready to teach, Jesus, we are so humbled by your presence here today. Lord, you know precisely how to communicate your word, and, um, and so we ask you that you would do that. I, I pray that each of us would just have uh, ready hearts, uh, responsive, receptive, ready hearts, Lord God, and that you would just work through me. Um, I, I, I love this passage. I love the truth of this passage. I love your word, Lord. I love the book of Revelation, Lord. I am so thankful, God, that you have given us instruction, wisdom, clarity from your heart and mind, Lord, to ours. And so, Lord, as we open up your word today, I pray, God, that you be glorified and that, uh, that we would walk out of here different than when we walked in. Lord, we need you to do something in us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Title of today's message, how do you move from a place of sin to a place of sanctification? And we're going to define both of those words, sin and sanctification for our study today. But I, I, I don't know about you, but I've experienced both sides. Like my BC days, uh, my sin days, <laughs> man, I, I, I went deep into that. And then when I got saved, I've been in this process. And so sanctification, it's this lifelong process, right? Like we, we get saved and then God begins to make us more and more and more like himself and less and less and less like our old self. And so thank God for that process of sanctification, but it's a process and it takes some effort. Sin is easy. It's like falling off a curb. You just do it without even thinking about it. There was this old bumper sticker that said, if it feels good, do it. If it feels good, do it. And I never knew what that meant. It was actually in my grandfather's motor home, I believe. And I always wondered, what does that mean, Grandpa? Now I know what it means. If it feels good, do it. If it's like, that's kind of what, how you fall into sin. Like, you just follow your emotions and you just do whatever you want to do. And that leads you right to a bad place. Sanctification, on the other hand, is a, a place of holiness. In fact, that word sanctification means holiness. It's a place of being separated unto the Lord for his kingdom work that he has for us in the earth. It's, it's a really beautiful, beautiful thing. So sin is described in the Bible as transgression of the law of God. It's lawlessness and rebellion against God. A sin had its beginning with Lucifer, probably the most beautiful and powerful of the angels, but he was not content with his position. He desired to be higher than God, and that was his downfall in the beginning of sin. So he had everything, but he wanted to be like the Most High God. Renamed Satan, he brought sin to the human race in the Garden of Eden, where he tempted Adam and Eve with the same enticement. You shall be like God. So he's tempting us the same way that he was tempted. He figured it worked on him, it might work on us. Sin versus sanctification. Sin is rebellion against God. Sanctification is God's will for us. If you ever wondered, <laughs> hey, what is God's will for my life? This is part of God's will for your life. And this is really where it begins, salvation, sanctification. This is the will of the Lord for your life. First Thessalonians 4, 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Again, that word sanctification means holiness, that you abstain from sexual immorality. After first service, somebody came to me and said, hey, can you give me more verses that tell me the will of God? 
I said the whole Bible will tell you the will of God. It may not say, for this is the will of God, but if you approach the word with a heart and mind that is teachable and responsive and ready, you will see the will of God on the pages of scripture. But for sure, for the will of God is this, it's your sanctification. The word sanctification is related to the word saint. Both words, my iPad messed me up here. Let me get right back to it. iPads are glorious some days and not so glorious other days. The word sanctification is related to the word saints. Both words have to do with holiness. To sanctify something is to set it apart for special use. To sanctify a person is to make him holy. So that's God's desire for us is that we would be set apart made holy. So Jesus on the cross died for our sins, taking the penalty for our sins. His blood covers us, making us holy, but then he calls us to holiness, sanctification in the way that we live our lives. With that, please stand for the reading of the scripture. Revelation 2, 18 through 29, to the church in Thyatira and to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat foods sacrificed to idols. I gave, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Letter to the church at Thyatira. You may be seated. The only other time this city of Thyatira is mentioned in scripture is in Acts chapter 16, verses 14 through 15, when Paul mentions Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller 
of purple goods. She was a worshiper of God. She was a worshiper of God because as the scripture says, the Lord opened her heart to what uh, what the apostle Paul said. The Lord opened her heart. That's my desire every time I open up the word is that I would open up my heart and that the Lord would open up my heart and I would have access to God's will and plan for my life. And so every time we teach and hear the word of God, our desire should be that we have open hearts, responsive hearts, receptive hearts. So the Lord opened her heart to what was said by the apostle Paul. It's possible that the testimony of Lydia, this single woman to her city is what might have caused this church to be formed. Isn't that interesting? So these seven letters, one of them is written to this church in Thyatira, and possibly this woman, Lydia, who heard, who had her heart open to the message of the Apostle Paul, at her testimony of Jesus Christ, it's possible that her testimony and her witness actually began a move in this city and started a church there. Listen, never, never underestimate your capacity to make a difference in the arena or area that you live and work and move and have your being. Never underestimate. Some people say, well, I'm just one person. What can I do as one person? person. You can do a whole lot as one person, as you live surrendered to the Lord, willing to do what God has called you to do. You, as an individual, single person who is filled with the Holy Spirit of God, who has the Word of God and the power of God, you can make a difference. Do you believe that? You, do, you need to believe that because you're gonna be confronted with challenging and difficult situations that require you as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ to take a stand against sinfulness, against this culture that is destroying our families and the fabric of our nation. You have a role and a responsibility. Thyatira was a small thriving town located about 40 miles southeast of Pergamum. Uh, Pergamon, the city where Satan dwells. Jeremy taught through that passage so well a couple weeks ago. Thyatira was famously known for the manufacturing of purple dye, and numerous references are found in secular literature of the period to the trade business that manufactured cloth there in Thyatira. Interesting. This is the fourth letter we look at today. And this is the longest and most direct letter to any of the seven churches. It's the longest, and Jesus gets down to brass tacks, and he's most direct with this church. Jesus issues a strong warning to this church that was known for its good works, but also for its compromise with the world, resulting in immorality and idolatry. So known for two things, Two, almost like, like two separate groups, one group known for their good works, another group known for their compromise. Jesus describes himself in this way in the opening verse, the words of the Son of God. <laughs> Whew, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. This is the only time that Jesus uses the name Son of God to describe himself in these letters to the churches. Jesus is making a very clear statement in this description. The name Son of God speaks of his 
deity. Jesus is God in the flesh, and as God in the flesh, he is speaking very clearly to this church. As God in the flesh, Jesus will challenge, encourage, and rebuke this church. Jesus is God, and as such, he has full authority to act in the church in Thyatira and in the church at Harvest Church here in Arroyo Grande. We submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He is our King and Lord, and we will submit to his plans and purposes for our lives. Jesus is God. He has full authority to act, and as such, we yield to him. We are reminded all throughout the New Testament that Jesus is God and has all authority. Colossians 1 15 through 20, speaking of Christ, it says this, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is, verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That is the God that we worship and serve in Jesus' name. He is our King and our Lord. So we won't take time to unpack all of the passages in Scripture that declare Jesus' deity and authority, but if you're taking notes and you want to write down a few more verses, and there are many many more, but if you want to write down a few more verses that declare the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen, it's the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ that separates Christianity from every other religious tradition and faith under the, under the planet. This is, this is what separates us from every other religious system in the earth. We believe that Jesus is God in you can see that in John chapter 10, verses 22 through 33. You can see that in Hebrews chapter 1 and also in Matthew chapter 14, verse 32. Over and over again throughout the scripture, Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth about who you are. Jesus spoke clearly that he and the Father are equal in nature and essence. He was worshiped by his disciples. He was persecuted and he was ultimately crucified because he claimed to be God. <laughs> That's you speaking. God is speaking. Do we have ears to hear? Revelation 2.18, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the words of the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Jesus reminds his readers who he is. He is the eternal God with eyes like flames of fire and feet like burnished bronze. What does this mean? <laughs> His eyes like flames of fire. Fire speaks of purification and judgment. So if you can imagine the fiery eyes of Jesus looking at you, it will bring something of purification or judgment. It is fully up to you. Have you ever had somebody give you the stink eye? 
<laughs> my father-in-law, bless his heart, he passed away earlier this year, but he could give you the stink guy and you knew, you knew that you were in trouble if you got the stink guy for Marv. He didn't have to say anything. You just knew, oh, I've probably done something I should not have done. There's power in that look, right? Jesus, I think Marv got that look from Jesus, right? Jesus has that fiery look in his eye. His fire speaks of purification and judgment. He has, he has all seeing eyes. Nothing is hidden from him. His feet like burnished bronze will smash with judgment, all sinfulness and ungodliness. Jesus declared in verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. So Jesus, he sees the good and the bad and the ugly and he commends this church for their good works, their love and faith, their service and patient endurance, but now judges them for their compromise with evil. Listen, our good works will never give us, should never give us license to play with sin or to indulge in sin. Our good works will never, never give us a pass to compromise with evil. We're seeing both in this church. Jesus said, but I have this against you that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat foods sacrificed to idols. How do you move from a place of sin to a place of sanctification? Number one, you must not, we must not tolerate sin. This woman in the church was leading the people of God down a sinful path. Apparently there was a woman in the church who claimed God's authority. She called herself a prophetess. Listen, just because somebody calls themselves a prophetess or a prophet or a representative of God does not mean that they are what they say they are. You know how you judge a person? You judge them by their fruit. You know a tree by its fruit, and you know a person, a follower of Jesus, by their fruit. What is, the, what is being produced out of their life? Is it fruit that is righteous and godly, or is it something else? We can judge the fruit of a person's life and know whether they are from God or not. This woman was not from God. She was teaching and seducing God's people to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrifice to idols. I wondered as I was preparing this message, was this woman really named Jezebel? Probably not. I mean, for the same reason that the name Judas went out of vogue, you guys remember who Judas was? So there probably weren't a lot of parents naming their sons Judas after his shenanigans. I would imagine that there weren't a lot of women named Jezebel after her shenanigans. I, just to make sure I was current with the times, I 
went on the internet, the place that you can find everything, and I looked for popular girls' names for 2023 and popular boys' names for 2023. And thankfully, I never saw Judas or Jezebel. What I did see, number three on the girls' list was the name Jolene. My wife's name is back in vogue. Isn't that amazing? If she were here, we would sing that wonderful song, Jolene, Jolene. All right, we won't sing that song today. So I don't know that this woman, Jezebel, was her real name, but she most likely acted and had the tendency of this woman named Jezebel. This supposed prophetess likely acted like the Jezebel of the Old Testament, the wife of Ahab, the wicked king of Israel. It is written in 1 Kings that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel before him. (laughs) This is not the epitaph that you want recorded after you go. Ahab was a wicked, wicked king. And one of the wicked things that he did was marry an intolerable and ungodly woman named Jezebel. 1 Kings 16.31 says of Ahab, and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, (laughs) the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal or Baal and worshiped him. So (laughs) Ahab, insult to injury, He's a terrible king leading his people astray and then marries a terrible woman leading, further leading the people astray. Jezebel killed the prophets of God, 1 Kings 18. She worshiped Baal and Asherah, 1 Kings 18. Asherah was a fertility goddess who was believed to be the mother of the gods. She was the mother of the gods and El or Baal was the father of the gods. And it's believed that according to mythology, that together they gave life to 70 gods. And so Asherah and Baal were the mother and the father of many, many gods designed by Satan himself to distract, confuse, and hinder the people of God from truly following the Lord God. Jezebel was an idolatrous and evil woman. She tried to kill Elijah, And Elijah was afraid of her. Remember, when Jezebel pursued Elijah, he ran and was afraid. He was a prophet of God, but there was something about this wicked, evil woman that even put him to flight. She was a liar and a murderer, according to 1 Kings 21. She incited her husband to do evil in the sight of the Lord, 1 Kings 21. And she didn't have a happy ending to her life. Listen, Nobody who lives their life like a Jezebel will have a happy ending to their life. God told her that you will be killed and you will be eaten by dogs. What happened to Jezebel? Her servants 
threw her out of the window and she died and her body was eaten by the dogs. Not a happy ending for Jezebel. Listen, if you will trust Jesus, you will have a much happier ending for your life and your life will be better all the days of your life. Idolatry and sexual immorality always go hand in hand. Dennis P. Hollinger writes, the link between idolatry and sexual immorality is established by the frequent use of prostituting themselves or adultery to describe Hebrew idolatry in the Old Testament. Israel's unfaithfulness to God was not only a form of spiritual prostitution. Spiritual prostitution is this. When you declare yourself a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ and yet you're unfaithful in your declaration and you go off and worship some form of idol, you have committed spiritual adultery. So they were guilty of spiritual adultery, but also they also this also led to physical acts themselves. Indeed, these particular sins, idolatry and sexual immorality are the only two that always occur in the many vice lists in Paul's letters, which otherwise tend to vary considerably. Here's an example, Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. There are two, there's the work of the spirit and this flesh. This is the work of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, and idolatry. They always go hand in hand with idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things and things like these. So even as the Jezebel of old was guilty of idolatry and sexual immorality, this Jezebel spoken of in Revelation is guilty of the same thing. How do you move from a place of sin to a place of sanctification? Number one, you must not tolerate sin. Number two, you must repent. If you refuse to repent, you are inviting trouble. We see it right here in this passage. Back to Revelation chapter two, verse 21. Jesus said, I gave her time to repent. This is the heart of our God, always desiring to give us time to repent. Have you experienced that in your life? I've experienced it in my life. What you don't want to do is ignore your opportunity to repent and continue on in the destructive lifestyle that you're leading, but listen to the heart of God, the desire of God, he desires that you would repent. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Twice the word repent is used. We'll see it a third time before we wrap up this passage. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery, spiritual or physical adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. So Jesus is calling this church to brokenness, contrition, repentance. 
and then warns them if they refuse, great tribulation will come. Great trouble will come. Affliction, trouble, anguish will be the result. But I, Jesus is saying, that's not, that's not what I want for you. Please repent so that you don't have to experience what I'm talking about. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery, spiritual or physical adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. So tribulation can be understood as affliction, trouble and anguish. I mean, trouble will come our way if we refuse to repent. God will do whatever he needs to do in our lives to get our attention so that we will repent. Difficult things will happen in our lives. Tragic things will be allowed to happen in our lives if we refuse to repent. God is giving us an opportunity to repent this side of heaven because once we get there, once we die and we are done here, there is no more time to repent. You do not know when you are going. You have no idea when your time is up. So I would recommend that you keep short accounts with God and make today your day of repentance. Don't wait. You do not know. And if that scares you, it should. All eternity hangs in the balance. We should be very afraid. The wages of sin is death. Jesus continues, and I will strike her children dead. Your decisions impact those around you. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. His eyes are like flames of fire. He sees everything. And though they were commended for their good works, their hearts were full of darkness. Our works need to be good and our hearts also need to be good. Both are accomplished by the grace and the strength and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of us look really good because our, on the outside we look really good, but on the inside our hearts are dark. They're tainted they're corrupted, they are disobedient and unfaithful to the Lord. God knows precisely what is going on in your heart and in your mind. And so we must make sure that our good deeds by his grace honor him, by his strength honor him, but that our hearts equally so, equally importantly so that we make sure that our hearts are right. How do you move from a place of sin to a place of sanctification. Three things. Number one, you must not tolerate sin. Number two, you must repent. And number three, you must make sure that your heart is right. These are the three steps that you take to move from a place of sin to a place of sanctification. There is a remnant in this church, the church at Thyatira, who are keeping their hearts Right, and this is what Jesus says to them, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. The deep 
things of Satan is a reference to the satanic system of belief and practice often seen in cults that compete with the true Christian faith. Jesus said, only hold fast what you have until I come. How do we hold fast? We refuse to tolerate sin. We repent and we make sure that our hearts are right before the Lord. Jesus said, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. To those who overcome, there will be a reward, a promised place of authority, sharing Christ's rule over the nations of the world, speaking primarily to the millennial reign of Christ. And he will rule with a rod of iron. And, with, and when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from the Father. I looked at that word rule. He will rule them with a rod of iron. And I thought, what does that mean? I mean, it accurately portrays the power of God, the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. It accurately portrays that, but we need to understand the full definition of that word rule. The word rule is a shepherding word. It's a shepherding word. So even as you think about King David, who was a shepherd, and when the lions and bears tried to go after his sheep, he ruled them with an iron rod, right? He protected them. That word rule, it means to feed and to tend to a flock and to keep sheep. And so our great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, is ruling over us, protecting us from danger and providing and taking care of us in our time of need. And Jesus said, I will give him the morning star to the one who overcomes. We're promised all of these things and then we're promised Jesus. Jesus Christ himself is the bright and morning star. Jesus declared it to be so at the end of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, it says, I, Jesus, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. He said, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Are we listening? Are we listening? To listen indicates a receptivity to the truth. We're hearing it. And as evidence that we've heard it, we're responding to it with humility and gratitude and obedience. We're hearing what the Lord has called us to and by his grace and in his strength, we're hearing it. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So God in the flesh incarnate, Jesus is speaking to these churches. Are we listening? Are we taking in what God is speaking to these churches for our church, for our lives in the 21st century? Are we listening and are we hearing? If we will listen, we will move from a place of sin to a place of sanctification. How do we do that? We must never tolerate sin. We must repent and we must make sure that our heart 
is right. This is the path forward for every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We stand firm by his grace, not tolerating sin in our homes, in our personal lives, and in our church. And we repent. And that's a regular part of who we are as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're people who must keep short accounts with God. And so you repent. You change your mind. Say, God, I repent of this behavior. I changed my mind. And maybe, just maybe, you have to do the same thing when you wake up the next day. But keep short accounts. I believe and I know that anytime people who are humble and broken will repent of their sin, God is always faithful, even if you got to do it again and again and again. Jesus died for us because we couldn't, we weren't capable, we, we cannot get it right this side of heaven. If we could get it right, there was no need for Jesus to die, but we just plain and simple cannot get it right. But Jesus got it right. And on our behalf, he got it right. And on our behalf, he took the penalty for our not getting it right, and he died on the cross, crucified for my sin, went to the grave because I'm in need. And then on, third, on the third day, he resurrected, proving his deity, proving who he is. He is God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. And once a month, we have the opportunity to remember what Jesus did. And in our remembering, we, with fresh resolve by his grace and in his power, we decide I'm not tolerating sin and I, and I will repent and I will make sure that my heart is right. And so every time we take communion, the challenge, the encouragement that I heed myself is I need to take a personal inventory of my life. Lord, have I tolerated sin in my life. Lord, what do I need to repent of? God, is my heart in the right place? And in a, in a moment, you can do all of that work. It doesn't have to be long and drawn out, but it absolutely must be sincere. And so, Lord, in a moment, we can say, Lord, I, I, oh, I remember I tolerated that. Oh, Lord, I repent of that. Lord, I want to make sure that my heart is right before in remembrance of you, in worship of you, I take the elements today. And so I encourage you to do that. Maybe you've, uh, you're here today and you've never, ever done that. You've never recognized your need for repentance. You're done tolerating sin and you want to make sure that your heart is right. You just simply say, Lord, I'm, I'm no longer going to tolerate sin in my life. I, I confess and I repent, Lord. I don't, I don't want to do that stuff anymore, Lord. I don't want to live that way anymore, Lord. I want to make sure my heart is right, Lord. God, I give my life to you today and for the rest of my life. I will give my life to you today and for the rest of my life. I will follow you today and for the rest of my life. You are my king. You are God and I am not. And so, God, I give my life to you. Thank you, Lord. Paul gave us some instruction in 1 Corinthians 11 about what this 
communion moment looks like. And he said, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. With that, Tim's gonna lead us in a final song. I would invite you to stand up. And when you're ready, when you've taken those steps that we've been talking about today, when you make sure your heart is right and you've confessed your sin, then with joy and gratitude, take communion, knowing that Jesus saves you and he loves you. Let's go ahead and stand up.